You're listening to the Podcast Network. Find more great podcasts at www.thepodcastnetwork.com. Listen. Learn. Evolve. Welcome again, ladies and gentlemen, to the Napoleon Bonaparte podcast. My name is Cameron Riley. I am your humble button pusher. <laughs> On the line <laughs> with me is my eminent co-host, Sir J. David Markham. I hear that uh, in between our last episodes, he was contacted by the Queen. She wants to make him a, a knight of, of the order for his services to the British Empire. How are you, Sir David? Well, I'm afraid the only knight that I'm ever going to be uh, made is uh, out of uh, Man of La Mancha, the knight of the woeful continents, perhaps. But, but uh, you know, if, if Her Majesty were to want to make me a knight, I would, I would gratefully uh, step up there with the Beatles and so on. Uh, I, uh, and Bill Gates. Don't forget I'm Bill doing Gates. Fine, thank you. Uh, one of our posters commented that, that I, at times it seemed like I didn't have an easy time, and I'm, I'm still a little slow, I guess. But then, of course, a lot of folks have s- said for years that I was a little slow, so there's probably nothing uh, uh, different there. I also noticed that same person said that, uh, that you, Cameron, maintain masterly inactivity through most of the show. Well, that, of course, comes from the fact that I won't keep my mouth shut and give you a chance to, to get a word in edgewise. So some of that inactivity is, 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 is something that uh, is definitely caused by, by my uh, uh, overactivity. And uh, it's my pleasure. You know, I've explained many times my job here is to press the record button and uh, let you do the talking, sir. And um, yeah, it's always a pleasure to hear you talk about Napoleon Bonaparte. I just wanted to give a quick welcome before we start off the show today to all of the new listeners that have joined us since last time. Our uh, downloads are just going through the roof. We're getting tens of thousands of people coming in every month now and uh, listening to the show from all over the world. We've had uh, we've had emails uh, in since the last episode from. An American uh, soldier serving in Iraq who's listening to the show. We've had uh, Pascal from Berlin asking some questions. We've had people from all over the world, and it's uh, the the feed, the constant feedback uh, keeps us going. So thanks very much to everybody for continuing to listen to the show and for providing us all of the great feedback. Yes, uh, thank thanks to all of them. To to Pascal, by the way, I'll be in Berlin this summer, and if you are interested in, in, in saying hi, having a drink, perhaps uh, uh, send me an email. And I want to say a special word to, to the folks who, who are in Iraq uh, and, and, and might be listening to this show. I was, I was extremely touched to, to hear that and, and surprised. I guess it hadn't occurred to me that some of our young men and women uh, uh, in Iraq might be listening. And as a, a Vietnam veteran, uh, uh, with a Bronze Star and, and a year of service over there, I I have a very special feeling for for our soldiers in Iraq. There's that th- anyone who listens to to our show knows that 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 I am not a fan of 
of American policy uh, that got us into to to that uh, uh, military operation. But but no one should ever think that I or any other American has anything but the the highest possible regard for for our young soldiers uh, and and sailors that that are over there. Uh, I personally wish you all of the very very best. I I. I I hope that you remain safe and are able to achieve whatever level of success you, you possibly can. And, and, and it, it's really very touching to me, and I, and I mean that literally. That's, that's not just hype. I'm, I'm touched by the fact that, that, that folks over there are, are actually listening to me. So I send you all my very, very best wishes. And, and I'll tell you, if, uh, if you, I know you have some, some uh, fairly sophisticated bases over there compared to, to what I had in Vietnam. And, and if you have a, a library uh, over there that, that, that soldiers uh, have access to and would like me to send uh, you know, some copies of my books uh, over there to, to, to give you guys and gals something to, uh, to read, uh, it would be my extraordinary honor to, to do that. So someone send me the information, uh, who, someone who's over there in Iraq, if, if you're at all interested, in, and I, I'll be more than happy to send copies. And uh, <laughs> well, I just want to say to people in Iraq listening to this podcast, what the hell are you doing? Like, shouldn't you be paying attention? This bad. <laughs> I, I had this. Ho- <laughs> I, I had this horrifying, you know, vision of a future Fox News report that said that uh, you know the increase in uh, car bomb attacks in a, in Baghdad were directly related to the number of people listening to the Napoleon podcast on the podcast network instead of paying attention to what are you doing? Keep your head down. Well, That's all I want to say. I, I somehow suspect that this is when they were in the Green Zone or in some other other base camps. Uh, hey, the camera green- and I, I certainly doubt that they're running out there with their iPods on while they're you know going down the streets of, uh, of Baghdad or, or, or someplace else. But uh, uh, again, all all the very best to all of you. Yeah, look, uh, as David says, you know, my uh, my view is that it should never have happened. But hell, I wouldn't be going over there. So I have respect and, and great admiration for anyone who's willing to put themselves in that kind of situation. Now, listen, let's uh, get on with the show, David, because uh, you know we 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 tend to to go long as it is. Um, now, this is going to be as we agreed at the end of the last episode. Today, we're going to do the Peninsula War. Part two. Uh, uh, ho- hopefully, there won't be a part three, but uh, we'll see how it goes. Now, uh, I think in our last episode, we kind of gave a little bit of background around the the Peninsula War, you know, N- Napoleon's uh, invasion of Portugal, the way he was invited into Spain by the Bourbon royal family, uh, who was in uh, a state of disarray. And he he marched in sort of thinking that he was, I, I guess in some ways, getting an, an easy an easy win, that uh, it was going to be a lay-down misere, and, um, you know, it really didn't come much easier than that, pretty much getting invited in by the, the royal family of the time. But as we explained, didn't didn't uh, didn't go that smoothly. Now, one of the things I wanted to ask you, I've been thinking about this over the last couple of weeks. One of the things I really don't understand about this is who was who was causing the revolt. Now, I've I, in the books that I've read, including your books, I've read that the obviously um, 
the 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 king and Ferdinand wanted Napoleon involved to to varying degrees. The intelligentsia of Spain were quite pleased to have the Napoleonic influence because, you know, Napoleon, when he did the musical chairs, took out Murat and put Joseph in his place. Murat got to go and have a nice vacation in Naples. <laughs> it, uh, the, 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 a lot of the reforms that were instituted, including shutting down the Spanish Inquisition, which had been a terrible scourge for hundreds of years, were appreciated by the intelligentsia, but obviously the the people of Spain weren't pleased. I wanted to ask you, who was coordinating all of this? Is it the Catholic Church or is it Spanish militia? Is it a combination of these? Who's really driving the the revolt against the Napoleonic forces? Well, you've you've gone slightly ahead of where I was going to talk about this, but but I think it's it, there's a variety of, of of things happening here. Uh, and I'm not sure you can point a finger and say, yes, this is the specific leader or this is a specific organization. Uh, first of all, and this, this is also in response to one of the posts uh, that, that, that said rather, rather vehemently that Napoleon really didn't care about, about reforming Spain. Uh, in fact, when Napoleon himself comes, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll backtrack and get to that again in a second, he in fact does... Uh, do all sorts of, of reform-oriented things. He, he does, in fact, abolish the Inquisition. He restructures the, <clears throat> the, the church and, and its relationship to, to the government, removing a lot of the influence that the church had. Uh, he, he installs his usual uh, a collection of, of financial, social, and political reforms. He, he basically tries to modernize Spain uh, uh, in, in, in a way that will will bring it as I as, as I mentioned I think in, in 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 one of the books anyway bring it finally out of of the Middle Ages and and a number of these reforms are are certainly popular with the intelligentsia that that's a given and some of them are even popular with the common people but the the bottom line to this and this is why Spain is is sort of a, a bellwether for for insurgency operations. Uh, throughout history, the bottom line to this whole thing is is religion. Uh, the the peasantry, the common people, not just peasants, but the common people, the average everyday people, the poor folks, whatever you want to call them in Spain, are devoutly Catholic, and they were bitter toward France from the days of the French Revolution, and it's it's obviously anti-clerical uh, bent. They were bitter toward Napoleon, uh, who they felt had mistreated the Pope and pressured the Pope into accepting things that they didn't think the Pope should accept. They, Napoleon always thought that the Concordat would, would make the Spanish Catholics look up to Napoleon for having brought the, 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 the Catholic Church back into a position of importance in in France but but in in reality they they saw that as 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 almost an insult that that the pope had been pressured into doing this sort of thing and so you you have from the pulpits as it were these conservative catholic priests bishops preaching hatred toward France toward Napoleon toward King Joseph uh, toward the whole French operation uh, in the country. And that's where it, boy, does it sound familiar. Uh, you, you, of course, get that in, in, in many 
Muslim countries, and particularly in, in Iraq and in some areas of Afghanistan. And to a lesser extent, I don't know about Australia, but in the United States, we have what, what I would consider to be a problem of, of extremely conservative uh, fundamentalist uh, Christian groups. And, and you have the, 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 the ministers and the pastors and so on preaching political beliefs and sometimes very hateful political beliefs in the churches and, and firing up that segment of the population. Now, in a democracy like ours, it's it's tolerable and we can survive it but in a country like spain which is so overwhelmingly one religion and so overwhelmingly the the conservative branch if you will of that religion uh, it's really a problem and then of course you have the british the british may not be causing these feelings but they are certainly there willing and indeed able to take full advantage of the opportunities that these uh... Uh, feelings uh, are uh, are going to, uh, to to bring out. So, to answer your question, I, I really think that it is the deep religious fervor that is the cause. That's the root of the problem here, and it's also at the root of many of the atrocities that go on. Uh, again, as, as 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 I pointed out last time with Goya's paintings and stuff, we have a tendency to be aware of the, the French atrocities. But what we don't often realize is that the, the, the Spanish peasants were guilty of atrocities at least as bad as those committed by the French. And indeed, many of the French atrocities were really in response to what had happened to French soldiers who had managed to get caught up, uh, uh, you know, isolated uh, from, their, from their main unit. It was not a, a safe place to be if you were an individual French soldier or a small group out there isolated from the main body of your soldiers and therefore from their protection. Uh, and uh, even in these movies like the, the, the television series uh, uh, of Richard Sharp and so on, you, you get a sense of, of, of that going on. Well, I, we'll probably talk more about this, I guess, as we move through the episode. Um like uh, one of the questions I've got is, is who called the British in? But but I'm getting ahead of myself, as you say now. So let's go back a little bit and talk about the escalation, I guess. We we mentioned, I think, in our last episode that uh, there was a situation in Madrid where uh, there was a sort of a, an attack on the French troops and the French army retaliated. Now, I believe that around about February... Napoleon had boasted that it would only take 12,000 men to conquer Spain, but <laughs> that didn't last very long. By June, he had something like over 120,000 troops spread throughout the country, uh, fighting various battles all over the place, didn't he? Well, he did, and, and part of the problem was that they were, they were really widely uh, spread and, and, and therefore somewhat uh, uh, ineffective, and, and, and the smaller the the smaller the base unit is, the smaller yet the patrols and so forth are, and therefore the more vulnerable to the kind of thing that, that we're talking about. Uh, it's a little bit like, uh, again, modern, and modern uh, uh, history. Uh, one of the criticisms that both liberals and conservatives make, Republicans and Democrats alike make, uh, of our 
expedition into Afghanistan and then into Iraq is that is that we didn't really go in with enough troops uh, from the get-go. Uh, that had we gone in with enough troops into either Afghanistan or Iraq, that the the military situation might very well have turned out quite a bit differently. Uh, and in the case of of uh, the French uh, in Spain and Portugal, uh, the initial troops, generally speaking, were were not really the very best. You have to understand also, and it's 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 you can't really call it racism because these are Europeans here, both the French and the and the Spanish. Uh, but it's it's a little bit like racist attitudes uh, toward people. The the French had a very low opinion of the Spanish peasantry, really didn't think they were very sophisticated, and particularly did not have a very high opinion of their fighting capacity or of the Spanish army's fighting capacity. The French army was the creme de la creme, the conquerors of Europe. The Spanish army was nothing. Uh, now, to be sure, a Spanish unit up against a French unit, one-on-one, -on -one. the French unit, at least uh, you know, one of the better French units, is likely to be significantly better than, than its counterpart in Spain. That said, the Spanish army, the Spanish soldiers, and the Spanish people were capable of a great deal more than uh, the French really had given them credit for. And, you know, that's when Napoleon finally, when Napoleon finally figures that out, that's when he comes in and we're, that's pretty much where I thought we might start tonight. But, but the, the, uh, uh, the fact is they sent raw recruits, they sent lesser units uh, to Spain because that's what they thought it would take. They didn't think it would take elite French troops to, to uh, achieve victory. And, and they were wrong. Now, and that, that's not the case with, with, with the Americans uh, in Afghanistan and, and uh, uh, Iraq. I mean, our, our troops that we sent in were, were elite fighting forces. Uh, we, you know, we sent in our best, our best soldiers, uh, uh, young men and women. And, and, uh, but I think it is true that we probably, as Americans, certainly our leadership, but I think the average American citizen probably assumes that somehow the Iraqi army isn't very good and you know these insurgents aren't going to be very effective <clears throat> against the highly trained American military force with all of our technology and so on uh, and they're they're proving uh, really the same point that Napoleon learned in Spain uh, that it might be that an Iraqi army unit up against an American army unit is not going to do so well we certainly proved that in the first Iraqi war Desert Storm years ago, uh, but that when it comes to defending their homeland and operating under the conditions that they choose, uh, they can be pretty doggone effective. And I think every American soldier I've talked to has has said that yeah, those those folks are effective at doing uh, what they do, which is a darn shame from our standpoint. But but there's certainly a lesson to be learned there, and that lesson was taught uh, to the world in Spain 200 years ago. Yeah, I guess um, you know when we look at the the escalation of activities in Spain it, and reading through the, the the various books on it, it seems to be that, as you say, Napoleon and 
you know, in all fairness to Napoleon, uh, despite the fact that in our comments section uh, people have argued my assertion in the last show that this is really where guerrilla warfare first emerged, there had probably been incidences of, you know, insurgent-type behaviour in the past. But in terms of going up against a very large, very established army like the French army in a coordinated, you know, fashion, as coordinated as guerrilla warfare is, Napoleon just couldn't believe that, you know, these uh, insurgents could be a serious threat to his troops, and obviously they were. Now, we we obviously don't have time, as we usually don't, to go through all of the battles that happened, because there was quite a few happening across Spain. I believe that one of the turning points, though, was down in Andalusia, where Napoleon had sent General Dupont. General Dupont was... Uh, the, Andalusia was one of the key areas Napoleon felt that whether the insurgents were coming out of really needed to be controlled and uh, sent Dupont down there uh, with instructions to take control of the situation. General Dupont uh, did a terrible job and uh, lost the the city of the town of Belen and lost i think 24,000 troops in the process i've got a letter here uh that napoleon well, he didn't lose he didn't lose them but but over 20,000 of them surrendered well captured sorry yeah they were they were captured not killed when i say lost and i've got a, a letter here that napoleon wrote uh, to marshal Soult couple of weeks later, he says, Dupont has utterly disgraced himself and my arms. He conducted his operations at the end of July like a fool and a coward and completely lost his head. He has upset all my plans in Spain. But the harm done is nothing to the dishonour. The details of the affair, which I prefer to keep to myself, would make your blood boil. One of these days they shall be published and the honour of our arms shall be avenged. And I think Dupont was uh, uh, actually uh, court-martialed as a result of what happened. But basically, as I understand it, it, there was a major setback and uh, Joseph and the rest of the French command panicked, ordered a general retreat, abandoned Madrid, undid all of the the hard-fought gains that the French had at that time in Spain. And it was, you know, a, a major setback to the prestige of the French fighting forces. And it was at this point, I believe, that... Napoleon decided it was time to actually show his face uh, on the battlefield. Well, I think that's that's that that's that's a good part of it, and you're right. <clears throat> the 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 defeated Berlin was, you know, really uh, a major wake up call to Napoleon, a major wake up call to the French, and unfortunately, a major wake up call uh, to 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 the Spanish. Uh, that that these guys can be defeated, they can be defeated big time, and they can be defeated by us. Uh, but it was also a clear indication uh, to the British uh, that that it was it was time for them to 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 get involved uh, heavily because they wanted to take full advantage of this. They had been perhaps a little bit tentative, uh, not not entirely sure. Like like if the French thought that the Spanish were likely to be incompetent, it's it's fair to say that the that that the the British were not uh, entirely sure just how strong an ally they were going to have uh, if they went into uh, the Iberian uh, Peninsula, uh, but when when the Spanish insurgents uh, had had asked them, uh, uh, they had in fact sent an army into into Portugal uh, led by a man uh, named Arthur Wellesley, 
uh, the future Duke of Wellington, of course. Uh, and after Berlin, uh, clearly the British are, are, are now thinking, well, this might work out pretty well. And in August, uh, I think the 21st of August, uh, General Junot, uh, one of Napoleon's uh, friends uh, and, and a general of some repute, <clears throat> Uh, tried to attack, uh, well, he did attack uh, uh, the British under Wellesley in, in Portugal, uh, and, and, and he also was defeated uh, and had to surrender his uh, entire uh, army. I don't have the numbers handy, but, but it was a major defeat. Now, there's a sort of an interesting side story to that, and that is that... Uh, for whatever reason, and I've never really understood it, and again, this is not an area that I've, that I've done a lot of research on, but for whatever reason, uh, those people who were immediately above Wellesley said, listen, let's see, rather than, than not accept their surrender, which included terms, let's accept their surrender, uh, let's treat them well, uh, and, and, and indeed, let's uh, allow them to evacuate Portugal, go to France, keep all of their materials, all their baggage. They have been plundering the, the countryside, as soldiers often do. They got to keep all of that. And indeed, the British gave them passage on, on British ships to take them to, to the coast of France. Uh, and when, when Whitehall, when, when, when the government in, in, in London got, got all of this information, they were livid and recalled all of the commanders, including uh, Arthur Wellesley, uh, to, to put them on, uh, on a, you know, investigative leave of some kind or whatever. Uh, and, and General uh, Sir John Moore was left in command. Now, Wellesley didn't really do anything wrong. He did what he was ordered to do. He's back by April of 2009. Uh, but meanwhile, uh, Moore is, uh, is left in charge, and things are looking fairly good for the, the Spanish insurgents. For the Portuguese who, who who wanted the French out, and of course for the uh, English, <clears throat> but Napoleon, as you alluded to a while ago, is not going to sit back and say, "Well, gee, that didn't work out. I guess I'll just start building a wall at the Pyrenees or something." Um, Napoleon is is very very concerned uh, about what's going on in Iberia. Remember. One of the primary reasons for all of this is his continental system, this economic blockade of Great Britain that he's trying to institute, and he can't do that if he doesn't control the Iberian Peninsula. Uh, well, as it happens, in 1808, things are fairly quiet on the Eastern Front. There's, there's peace on the rest of the continent. There's not really a whole lot going on. Uh, he's, he's won the battles in 1807 that we talked about. The, the Peace of Tilsit is in effect. The Russians and the Austrians and the Prussians uh, are all, at least for the moment, at peace with Napoleon. And so he can turn his attention to the south, to Iberia. And when Napoleon turns his attention to something, he, he does it big time. Uh, and what he basically... Uh, uh, decides is that he needs to have what we call today, I suppose, a surge. Uh, he says, you know, the, the soldiers I sent there 
were, were not capable. Either the leadership was not capable or there weren't enough of them or something because it didn't work out very well. And so I, Napoleon, will go myself. You know, you, you, if you, you, people you send can't do it right, go down there and show them how it's done. And that's exactly what he does. And he goes in there with 100,000 fresh troops. And these are good troops. These aren't the raw recruits. These aren't the units that didn't do so well. These aren't the, the units that, that, that were, really were not up to the full fighting power of the, of the French army. These were well-trained troops <clears throat> devoted to their emperor, devoted to Napoleon. And he brings with him top marshals. <clears throat> he brings Jean Lan, for example, Marshal Michel Ney, who, for whatever else we may say about him, was at the, at the proper level of command, brilliant and inspirational to his troops. And, of course, Marshal Nicolas Soult, one of his finest uh, marshals ever. Uh, they march through the Pyrenees, brush aside all sorts of Spanish opposition, uh, and, and by December, they are in Madrid, with Joseph, uh, the Spanish resistance has been pretty much just swept aside by by this juggernaut that that is Napoleon leading his army, uh, and Napoleon takes charge. Now this was a mistake. Napoleon goes to Spain, and now he starts to act like he is the king of Spain. Well, you shouldn't do that. That's the one big mistake that Napoleon made. Uh, he should have done everything through Joseph. Joseph was the king. Joseph was fairly popular with significant portions of the Spanish people. It wasn't like all of Spain hated Joseph. The people that you need to run a nation rather, rather liked Joseph and thought he was fine. But Napoleon takes charge and he personally pushes all those reforms and that we talked about a few minutes ago. And... Uh, and again, goes over fairly well. Now, the, the problem, of course, is if you look at the map, Iberia is a big area. Now we got a couple hundred thousand troops there, and that sounds like a lot. And in a smaller country, a couple hundred thousand troops would be a lot. A couple hundred thousand, I haven't looked at the map, but you know, this, this Iraq has to be a lot smaller. So a couple hundred thousand troops in Iraq is going to be a bigger, you know, impact than a couple hundred thousand troops in, a, in an area like Iberia. <clears throat> and so in order to try to keep order, they get split up a lot. They're here, they're there, they're everywhere. And it's very difficult for them to move as a major coordinated group. Moreover, now they're under separate commands. You got this marshal here, you got that marshal there, and so on. All under the general control of Napoleon, but still becoming increasingly isolated, even though now they, they are bigger units and there are more, more of them. <clears throat> so Sir John Moore decides to, he's not going to let Napoleon have the whole stage to himself. And so he moves out of Portugal and into uh, Spain itself. Well, Napoleon, of course, is, 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 is a master. And he, he can see that that's where you have to go. You, you know, never mind the Spanish for right now. You cannot 
have the British on Iberian soil. And so he sends major forces uh, against the, the, the British. He drives more back to the sea and at, at uh, Karuna. And Moore sits there for, for a, a few days and is eventually uh, removed by the transport ships. Uh, I've always thought that, that, that Soult kind of blew this. He could have, he could have annihilated the, the, the English army, I think. But, but there are experts out there who know much better why or why not this, this, this could have been done. Uh, and some people criticize Moore for, for not taking the offensive or, or taking taking the fight uh, to uh, Soult, uh, and again, Soult was a very, very fine marshal. Uh, nevertheless, the British are chased out. Moore himself is killed. It's a great French victory, but it has distracted the French from dealing with trying to what I suppose today we would call a pacify the Spanish countryside. Uh, so it did for the British... Uh, managed to to achieve that goal at least it kept the the, uh, the 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 French from doing what they really needed to do more than 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 fight some some British army <clears throat> so I, I think this is a good juncture to talk a little bit about mr. Wellesley Sir Arthur Wellesley because um, this is really I guess the the, the period where he is introduced. <laughs> prominently into this Napoleonic little tale that we're telling. And obviously oh, we'll, sure. we'll go on to play a, quite a significant role uh, about six years from now. Six or seven six years, years from now. Six years, you mean, are you suggesting that it'll be six years before we actually get to that period <laughs> of history of the podcast? Quite, quite possibly, <laughs> the way it's going. Um so um, let, let, let me explain to people, you know, I know that some of our uh, audience uh, from the, you know, I can look through our statistics. I was reading, David, uh, a little bit earlier on, the statistics of where our audience is coming from and they're all over the world. A lot of them are coming from Great Britain. I'm sure our, our listeners from Great Britain are very familiar with who this gentleman was. But for those of you that are new to Napoleonic history, it might be worthwhile giving you a little bit of background because you'll hear all of these names bandied about and sometimes it's a little bit hard to put them together so uh this this man that you will have heard referred to as wellington whenever you hear napoleon mention he was actually born the honorable arthur wesley w-e-s-l-e-y at his uh they think at his family's dublin residence called mornington house or perhaps at dangan castle so he was a a gentleman by birth he was the third of five surviving sons of Garrett Wesley, the first Earl of Mornington. And uh, you know, he was educated at Eton from 1781 to 1785. Then he went into uh, the military. He was um, his mother and his brother actually purchased a commission for him as an ensign in the 73rd Regiment of Foot. He received military training in England, attended the Military Academy of Angers in France, where he learned to speak fluent French and had an appreciation for the Ancien Regime. So, you know, this is sort of pre-revolution. He actually went and studied military. I wonder, it must have been 
very similar times to Napoleon. Weren't they both born in the same year? I think they were both born in 1769. So they were the, so. they were the same age and must therefore have uh, studied uh, in you know, military in France at the same time, although Napoleon studied uh, at different places, obviously. He was promoted to uh, aide-de-camp aide of two successive Lords Lieutenant of Ireland. Then he was promoted to Lieutenant in 1788. Two years later, he was elected as an, as an independent member of Parliament for the family-owned seat of Trim in the Irish House of Commons. The family-owned seat of Trim. I love that. Yes, that's... Uh, that's <laughs> you know, the, we, we are maybe in Australia and in... England today and so on, but I mean we have some seats that that seem to be sort of controlled by by one family or another seats in, in the Senate or in Congress, but it's 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 kind of hard to imagine a family owned seat. Yeah, but that's a different era. That's a different. That's not a put down. That's just a different era. Yep. Now, and his rise through the military ranks was rapid, but he largely purchased his ranks, which was fairly common in the British Army and, you know, in pre-revolutionary France. It was very common there as well. He, uh, Yeah, so he bought his way through the ranks, basically. Then in uh, 1796, he was promoted to colonel. He went to India, where his elder brother Richard was appointed Governor General of India. And he, you know, basically, um, he was known as the Sepoy Colonel, I think, wasn't he? Uh, something like that, after his time in India. And uh, then we've got, you know, in 1780, no, 17, no, sorry. Let me move on a bit here. So in, uh, he was basically sent to Portugal. This is how he ended up in the Iberian Peninsula, as you said. So he was sent to Portugal and uh, under the command of Sir John Moore. And when Sir John Moore was killed, which I guess we're coming to at the Battle of Corona in 1809, uh, Wesley took command, or Wellesley, as he was then known. Now, um, we're jumping a little bit ahead here, but seeing as I'm doing his biography, this is where the Wellington comes in. After uh, there was a, a, a victory... Under him in 1809, he was given the title of Viscount Wellington of Talavera and of Wellington. And his brother William selected the name Wellington for its similarity to the family name of Wellesley, which derives from the village of Wellesley not far from Wellington. And I suspect that's not the Wellington in New Zealand, but Wellington in the United Kingdom somewhere. Do you know where that Wellington is, David? No. Ah, Somerset. I believe here. Thank you, Wikipedia. Uh, it's a, Wellington is a small industrial town in rural Somerset, England. There you go. So that's yeah. You know, I, I just I went through that because I remember when I first started reading Napoleonic history, I, I was always wondering why these people had several names and and how you put it all together. So for new listeners, that is Sir Arthur, Sir Arthur Wellesley and AKA the Duke of Wellington. All right, we can continue now, now that i got that out of my system. Well, I, I, I know what an admirer of Wellington you are, so I was happy to sit back and, <laughs> and, and allow that to, uh, to take place. Uh, and I think it's, 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 it's good to, to, uh, to give our, our, our uh, listeners uh, a little bit of, of, of background on, on who some of these people were and, and, and how they came about. One, one person posted a comment on one of our episodes that, 
that we really maybe ought to take an episode and talk about some of the individuals whose names we mention from time to time and, and, and flesh out their lives a little bit more. Some of the marshals, for example, some of the other people uh, in, in Europe uh, uh, that, that we talk about, other leaders, I suppose, like Tsar Alexander or, 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 or whoever. Uh, and we probably should do that. That'll, of course, uh, keep us on, on our goal to still be talking, uh, you know, maybe about the Battle of Waterloo in, in 2015. Uh, but uh, uh, we, we probably should do something along that line. But I'm glad to, to give, give Wellington his due because Wellington, like Nelson, you know, is, is a very legitimate uh, British hero who, who clearly had a great deal of success in the Napoleonic period, and, you know, there's no, no question that we have a tendency to be pro-French in for this period of history, uh, but, but I also believe in giving, you know, credit where credit is due, and Wellington gets a, a great deal of credit. At any rate, as we had just said before we, we, we branched out there, uh, Moore was, was, was defeated on January 11th of, of 1809, uh, at Karuna, he he was killed, and his his soldiers were evacuated, uh, a precursor to Dunkirk, uh, uh, perhaps. Uh, and both sides were criticized. Uh, the French were criticized, assault for for not being aggressive enough and 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 pressing the advantage. My God, you you've got them against the ocean. Get to it, man. Uh, and and the the British, Sir, Sir Moore was was uh, uh, criticized uh, for not having been more aggressive for retreating uh, rather than turning and, and fighting the honorable fight. Uh, nevertheless, it would appear on the surface at least that the Iberian Peninsula is taken care of. Napoleon came, came south to take care of it, to get it ship-shape, and it appears that way. The British are gone. The capital, Madrid, is now uh, secured. French can walk the streets again and not be attacked. Uh, the, the, the king is back on the throne, King Joseph. Uh, there are some very good soldiers who are there and some good marshals uh, who are there. Uh, the countryside, while maybe not completely pacified, is uh, apparently going very strongly in that direction. <clears throat> so Napoleon can sit back in, in the palace in Spain, uh, and, and by the way, he, he gave uh, enormous amounts of beautiful French Empire furniture to the palace, much of which is still there, and some of the other uh, decorative items in the palace uh, are, are uh, French Empire from Napoleon's stay. When you take a tour of the palace, as I did some years ago, they, they don't actually mention that. I had to point out to them to the tour guide, much to her dismay, I think, although she had to admit I was correct, that an awful lot of the grandeur of that palace was was as a result of the the materials brought in by by the French under Napoleon. Uh, nevertheless, Napoleon has a few other things to do. Remember now, we're talking uh, January and February uh, of, uh, of 1809. Things are happening. Uh, Austria is beginning to rumble a little bit. Austria had never been all that happy being an ally of Napoleon's, 
And they're starting to think, you know, Napoleon is pretty well tied down. Uh, we don't really believe that Russia is going to truly take his side if it really comes to it. And so maybe we should start to, to uh, push a little bit on our own. Uh, and as we'll discuss in an episode or two, that's exactly what they do. But there's other problems as well. <clears throat> and now we get to our old friends, <laughs> Joseph Fouché the Minister of Police, and Charles-Maurice de Talleyrand Perigord, his foreign minister. These guys had been a boon and a bane to Napoleon for their entire career. They had done a lot of good stuff for Napoleon, make no mistake about it. But they also were two men of absolutely no trustworthiness whatsoever. I'm, I'm just finishing a book. In fact, just a day or so ago, uh, yesterday, in fact, I, I finished the, the, the basic writing. I mean, there's still a little editing and, you know, revisions to do. But I finished the basic work on my latest book, which deals with Napoleon essentially after Waterloo before before he goes to St. Helena. So it's during this period uh, in Paris and then down at Rochefort and Ildex and so on. <clears throat> where there's all sorts of skullduggery going on, almost all of it traceable to to uh, Joseph Fouché and to some extent by by uh, Charles uh, Maurice de Talleyrand. Uh, so I'm not a big fan of these gentlemen, and they're starting to create some difficulties that need to be looked into. Uh, there are uh, certain rumors going around, at least, uh, uh, that they are organizing a coup d'etat an attempt to overthrow Napoleon, again, taking advantage of his absence. This is a problem Napoleon has time and time again. He is something that modern countries have a hard time relating to, but he is the emperor, the ruler of a country. He's also the chief general, the chief military leader, and he goes with his soldiers into war. Imagine you know, any leader uh, in, in a modern country today, imagine President Bush or, or Prime Minister Tony Blair or, or heaven forbid, the Queen or, or any other leader of France, of Australia, of Canada, uh, you name it, leading soldiers into war. It doesn't happen. It, you know, Napoleon was about the last time that, that this, well, Napoleon III did, did some of that as well. And maybe there's been some examples afterward. You certainly had uh, Tsar Nicholas uh, going to be with the troops in the front line in World War II, which was one of the things, by the way, that made it possible for the, the Russian Revolution to take place. Uh, but, but after him, anyway, I think you're not going to find uh, very much activity. And, of course, Nicholas was no Napoleon. He, he was there more to, to be a symbol uh, than, 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 than a real leader, whereas Napoleon, of course, is, is a real leader, a uh, real military leader. Uh, so, so when he's gone, he has all of these things going on back in Paris. There's, there's various uh, coup attempts, and we'll, we'll talk about more of them. There's, you get to 1812, we'll talk about, about that one and so on. Uh, it turns out in this case, not much was ever found, and so, you know, uh, Fouché and Talleyrand kept their skins and I've often thought that if somehow they had simply been shot 
uh, that Napoleon might have been in power longer than than he was. Uh, nevertheless, uh, Napoleon, as I, as anyone could understand, can't be everywhere at once. So he decides he has to go back, and he tells people, "I'm going to go now. I've got to put out a few little fires here and there." But in the immortal words of the governor of California, "I'll be back." Okay. But the problem <laughs> was he never did get back. Unlike the, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, he never, in, in the Terminator, he, he never did come back. Uh, and boy, if he had, if he'd have gone up there and dealt with a few things and then gone back to Spain in person, that whole thing, including the invasion of, of France by, by Wellington, uh, and, 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 you know, the, the entire history of the next several years could have been extraordinarily uh, different. I believe had he gone there with sufficient forces that he was more than a match for Wellington and for the British and for the the Spanish insurgency uh, and that, that, that he would have at least as long as he was willing to put the effort into it that he would have once again thrown the, the British out and restored order and if you stay long enough you know you, you, you do begin to have you know some kind of an impact, and I think that could have been could have been the case. Uh, nevertheless, uh, it didn't uh, it didn't happen, and there were a number of very very serious problems that that we have to recognize. Uh, first of all, there's Joseph. Now I'm a I'm a bit of a fan of Joseph. I think Joseph is a very well-meaning person. I think Joseph makes a good effort. I think Joseph was weakened, at least in part, by Napoleon's kind of ignoring him when he was there. And he's also weakened by the fact, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, uh, that the, the marshals don't respect him much. They're, they're devoted to Napoleon Bonaparte. They're not devoted to Joseph Bonaparte, and they make that fairly clear. So Joseph is not a very strong ruler. Uh, he, he sits there and issues his orders, but, but everybody knows where the real power is. Can I, can I intervene there just for a second? You know who Joseph always, Joseph always reminds me of Fredo Corleone. Yeah, I give him more credit than that. Fredo, Fredo is, is weak, and, and he's weak largely because Michael and, and, and of course, his father are, are, are so so strong uh, but there's this you know the great you know, and, there's and, a there's a great scene in Godfather part two where Fredo says I'm your older brother Michael I'm your older brother <laughs> yes and and that's and that's a good point and and Joseph you know could have said that by the way from what I can tell going all the way back to Corsica when they first leave Joseph understood and accepted that his brother, his younger brother, Napoleon, was going to be the family leader. And I, although again, I'm no expert on Joseph, I've not uncovered any evidence that there was a great deal of residual bitterness or that, that, that he ever really wanted to try to challenge Napoleon. Uh, and in some ways, he was more loyal to Napoleon after all, it was Napoleon. It was Joseph who was willing to go to Spain, 
the other brothers had refused, and Joseph, I suppose, could have refused, and he, he did try to, uh, but ultimately he acceded where the other brothers didn't. Uh, at the end of Napoleon's career, it's Joseph, who is himself about to leave for America, who is even willing to trade places with Napoleon and let Napoleon escape France, posing as Joseph. They they looked enough alike that, that, that they you know they would have almost certainly gotten away with it. Joseph had passports to get out of the country and very easily did get out of the country when he left, uh, while Napoleon, of course, was desperate to get out and couldn't. Joseph was willing to take the heat and maybe go to prison, goodness knows what, uh, uh, to to allow his brother, uh, the deposed or, or abdicated emperor, to, to escape. Uh, so, you know, Joseph is not a guy, but he's not real strong. He, he is, in some respects at least, like Fredo. I'm a big fan of the Godfather movies, and, 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 and I can certainly see, see what you mean by that. Uh, Joseph was not a military commander at all. Napoleon was. Joseph was not. So he, unlike Napoleon, could not take personal charge of the troops, which means that he must leave things to the, the, the marshals. Uh, Napoleon leaves good marshals behind. But good marshals have enormous egos, and they don't like taking orders from each other. They don't like taking orders from King Joseph. They will take orders from Napoleon and really nobody else, at least not willingly. Uh, and, and so they had their own little petty feuds back and forth. Uh, some of them were barely speaking to each other. None of them had any respect, really, for for King Joseph. Uh, and you know this doesn't uh, doesn't help much. Now Napoleon left some pretty good soldiers down, but he did take the creme de la creme, the guard, and so so on back with him. Uh, the church is still preaching sermons. The the insurgency is truly. You know, a sectarian insurgency. It's the conservative Catholics against the secular Catholics uh, of France, uh, and and you know, religious warfare is nasty stuff, and and that's what the French have to deal with. Uh, plus, and this is real familiar to those of us in the United States with the war in Iraq. It is starting to get expensive when you. Look at the war in Iraq and look at the treasure we are spending that arguably could be spent on important things in this country. Uh, it's, it's staggering. And the same kind of thing exactly was beginning to happen uh, with the Spanish or the Iberian campaign. And as a result, uh, Napoleon says, okay, we will have to institute a tax, not on the French, to pay for this, but on the Spanish. Well, I've never met anyone who truly likes to be taxed, and the Spanish, I mean, you know, our government won't even tax us to pay for the war that we're engaged in, which, which I find bizarre, but I certainly can understand how the Spanish would not really be interested in being taxed to pay for the French soldiers that they would rather go home. 
I mean, how would you like that? I mean, that's a little bit like the American Revolution, and you know, the British soldiers were billeted in 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 American homes, and we were expected to pay a lot of the the cost of of having the the, the very British here that we wanted out, or at least that large numbers of us uh, wanted out. Uh, so that's clearly not going to do anything uh, for the French occupation of Spain, uh, and as a result. Uh, not long after Napoleon leaves, uh, it really begins to to go south. No pun intended. Things really, really uh, go bad. He uh, Napoleon, and we'll get to this later, of course, uh, is very successful against the the uh, Austrians. The Battle of Wagram, eighteen oh nine, is ultimately a great victory. Uh, that's when Napoleon, in my belief should have said, okay, now I'm going to go back in person and try to finish it. Would it have worked? I don't know. But he does understand that he's got these feuding marshals, and he's got to do something to re reinvigorate and reunify, bring some unity to what's going on in, in Spain. So he sends two of his best. He sends, you know, Marshal Andre Massena. One of my one of my dear friends uh, is is a big uh, proponent of of Marshal Massena as as Napoleon's uh, finest marshal. I have the honor of knowing the the latest incarnation of of uh, Marshal Massena, uh, Victor Massena, and Don Horward uh, is is one of the great scholars of the Napoleonic era, uh, scholars of the era, he's of this era, he didn't live then, and by the way, of the Iberian Peninsula, and by the way, I'm hoping to get him on as a guest sometime. Uh, but he believes that the the uh, Marshal Massena is, is the greatest marshal uh, of, of, of all of the, the marshals of, of, of the empire. Uh, and there's even a a modern Messina society, uh, to which I'm honored uh, to belong. Uh, and he also sends with him uh, uh, Marshal Louis Alexandre Berthier. Now, Berthier is another one of the absolute top people in Napoleon's army. He's his chief of staff. He's the one who interprets Napoleon's will, interprets the orders, sends, takes Napoleon's overall strategy breaks it down into its component parts, and gets it out there to everybody knows what they're supposed to be doing. You know, so he's sending these two people along with, and you got to understand this, 80,000 excellent soldiers. So he's not there himself, and I think that's a mistake. But he's done the next best thing. He sent a good-sized detachment, an army of 80,000 soldiers, and two top people. Now, these feuding marshals, they're going to listen to Massena. You don't screw around with Massena. <coughs> Excuse me. And they're going to listen to Berthier. They know that Berthier is Napoleon's right-hand man, and that Massena is certainly one of his top marshals. So this ought to work. On paper, it should work. And indeed, it does at first. The first order of business, get those damn Brits out of there. They are a pain in the butt. They are preventing us from doing what we want to do. And so 
They move against Wellington, who now is allied with the, 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 the regular quote-unquote Spanish army, uh, and of course the British forces there. And he retreats, Wellesley uh, retreats uh, to Portugal, uh, to a place uh, known uh, as the Lines of Torres Verdas, uh, Vedras, sorry, uh, in September. Marshal Massena and Marshal Michel Ney uh, as his second in command. Again, we're talking top shelf martial out here. These are the people that are most famous today uh, from, from this period. He's not got lackeys down there. He's got very good soldiers, which is, you know, more to the reputation of, of, of Wellesley uh, when, when he, he has success against them. He's not, he's not beating uh, has-beens. Uh, <clears throat> at any rate, the lines of Torres uh, Vedras are defensive lines of walls and fortifications uh, that Messina and Ney recognize they really do not have the ability to breach. If they're just too strong. Could they have somehow maybe gone around them or something? I mean, I'm not going to get into what possible uh, tactical uh, success could have, could have happened this way or the other way. But the fact is, the French are in tough shape. There's no food. The, the, the populace around them is very hostile. They lay siege for a month. Uh, that doesn't work. And eventually they withdraw as winter comes on in November uh, to uh, Santarum, uh, where they're going to spend the winter. Now, the British have learned something very valuable here. They've got a base from which they can operate. They've got a place they can always retreat to. If, if all hell breaks loose, they can always go back there and not be thrown out of the Iberian Peninsula. And that's a very, very critical thing for them to understand. <clears throat> well, now, it's, 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 all, it's all bad news from here on out, folks. So anyone here who's pro-French listening is, is, is not going to like the rest of this uh, because it, it gets grim. Uh, First of all, you've got three different groups that the French are fighting. There are, of course, the British. The British have a very good army. Wellesley is a very good leader. Very disciplined army, and they are on the move. You have the Spanish regular army. It's not nearly as good as the British, but it's trained. It's well-armed. It has some discipline, military formations. It knows battle strategies. Uh, and, you know, it's a force to be, to be reckoned with. And then finally, and I suppose uh, most importantly, uh, you have the Spanish uh, guerrillas, the guerrillas, the insurgents, if you will. Those are the ones that we think about. Those are the ones that you hear about, in, you know, from uh, Richard Sharp uh, and Sharp's uh, uh, rifles and so forth and so on. Uh, those are the ones that you see in Goya's uh, paintings uh, with, again, atrocities, probably an equal measure on both sides. Uh, but, uh, you know, and Richard Sharp is, a, is, 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 is great fun to read, by the way, and, and certainly to watch. Uh, you know, Sean Bean does a wonderful job. Uh, I, I met uh, a Rifleman Moore uh, once at a, at a conference that I went to in, 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 in London quite a number of years ago now, and a delightful fellow who even let me hold the, the big blunder bluff of uh, a rifle that, 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 that he uses. Uh, 
but the you know the sharp series always makes the insurgents to be saintly and and always successful and the the french are always just awful uh, and that's not the case of course the french army that was there was a very very good army it's also true that no one wanted to take prisoners there were not a lot of pow's taken there were some i've done extensive research on prisoners of war uh, during this period and and uh you, you've got a, a general of Blaney, for example, and, and, and others that were taken, but, but far fewer as a percentage than you would find, you know, uh, north of, of, uh, of, of, the, of the Pyrenees. Uh, so, again, the fact is, over time, you have increasing French casualties. The French are more and more forced to stay in their green zones, in their fortified base camps, if they venture out, uh, they're in trouble. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, you, we see this, this kind of thing repeated in history, uh, you know, for the last uh, 200 years. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a real problem. Uh, there are some French successes. Uh, uh, Okana in November of '09. Uh, protects Madrid at least for a time but the fact of the matter is Messina withdraws from Portugal uh, Wellesley consolidates the position in Portugal uh, by 1811 uh, Napoleon's really had enough and he sends even more of a surge into Spain uh, but then along comes Russia the preparations for the campaign of 1812 some of the best soldiers are once again pulled out. And now when you get into 1812, you have the worst nightmare of any military leader. And that is a two-front war. It's, it's the downfall of any number of leaders in history. It is so difficult to fight in two places at once if they're on opposite ends of your country or of your empire or of, of, of the field of, of war. It's one thing to have two, two places on the eastern front or two places on the western front or whatever. But when you've got an eastern front as far away as Russia, and then you've got uh, a western front or a southwestern front in, in, in the Iberia, it's a recipe for disaster, and that's exactly what you have. You've got the Battle of Salamanca in July of 1812 against Sult that, by, by Wellesley. That forces Sult to once again abandon Madrid to, to begin to move north. They, they hope to control northern Spain at least. That's closer. The lines of communication are closer, easier to get French troops in there and so on. Uh, but that's not going to work out either. They are able to consolidate, uh, and and it looks like well now we've got a bigger force, and we've got you know our our marshals all pulled in here together, and uh, at uh, Vitoria in June of 1813, uh, Joseph makes a stand at Vitoria. He's outnumbered by 15 or 20,000 soldiers. Uh, Wellesley wisely attacks from a variety of different directions all at once. Uh, Joseph is swamped. He retreats. 
he leaves almost all of his baggage. He lives his, leaves his artillery park, leaves pretty much everything behind. And uh, uh, in fact, that, that's one thing that saves his skin. He and his army get out because the, the British soldiers stop to, 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 to take their loot, to take their plunder. Uh, and uh, the, French, uh, the French get out. But by now, Wellesley, who had been made a field marshal, he's now in fact called Arthur, Duke of Wellington, as you suggest, uh, is extremely uh, well-known, extremely popular, popular with his troops. And Joseph hightails it to Paris. Soult is left. Soult has some success in the Pyrenees, but eventually he's simply outnumbered and overwhelmed. He's defeated in July. He's defeated again in August. Uh, and, and, and now we're talking late 1813, where Sult now his mission is not to secure Spain. His mission is to secure France. You have the, the campaign of France that begins in very late 1813, 1814. Uh, and the, the final battle is at Toulouse. And look at the map, ladies and gentlemen. Toulouse is in southern France. And Soult is defeated there in April, April 10th of 1814, and, and has to withdraw his forces to Carcassonne. Uh, Carcassonne, by the way, is one of the great cities of the world to visit. It's one of the most perfectly preserved medieval cities you'll ever find. Uh, fortunately, they call an armistice. It's obvious Napoleon's going to abdicate at this point. No one wants to see a military uh, action take place around this magnificent city of Carcassonne. Uh, and so they, they just kind of hang around until Napoleon abdicates and, uh, you know, the, the, the war is for now over. So to, to wrap it all up, uh, Spain, the Spanish ulcer, is in many ways, in my belief, the single biggest mistake that Napoleon made. He had never understood the nature of an insurgency. He had never understood the intensity of the religious feelings. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, this does sound familiar. There is a lesson there. It was his worst defeat. It was his biggest blunder. It bled his soldiers. It bled his reputation. It bled his, his treasury. Uh, and it led to a British invasion of France herself. If it had been handled differently, or if it had, had never happened, who knows if England's British forces would have ever really made their way through Spain and been able to attack France. That whole thing might well have been completely different. And again, if Napoleon had gone back, it might have been completely different. But the way it worked out, it was an unmitigated disaster in every possible meaning of the word. And more than anything else, more, I think, by far than Russia, as bad as that turns out, it was the Iberian campaign, what the British call the, the Peninsular War, that was the basic reason for Napoleon's downfall. Let me ask you a question, so I'm not accused of doing nothing as... Uh 
has been suggested recently. But you couldn't possibly have done anything. I've talked nonstop and barely took even any of my medication. My medication languishes here because I didn't dare stop to take a drink. <laughs> why Why didn't he withdraw? This This was... You know, this going on for years and years and years. Why do you think Napoleon didn't go, you know what, this is unwinnable. Let's just get the hell out and go and focus on the War of the Fifth Coalition. If people are wondering where Napoleon was during this time, he was fighting other battles, as you said, across uh, Europe. Why do you think he didn't just pull Joseph and everyone out of Spain and say, look, to hell with you, uh, have it back? Was it pride, reputation? I, I, all of the above. First of all, he thought he could win. He kept thinking, if we can just defeat the British in one big battle, we'll win. Just about like like, like uh, Russia in that case. Uh, there is a matter of pride, but it's but it's pride not of hubris, but but of necessity. You 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 know you rule if you have an aura of invincibility. And Napoleon's the thing that Napoleon had going for him more than anything else was this feeling on the part of his enemies and certainly on the part of his troops that he was invincible. It is Spain, and I should, really should have mentioned this, it is the Iberian Peninsula uh, campaign that deprives Napoleon of his aura of invincibility. He can be beaten, if not him, because he wasn't beaten in person, certainly the French can be beaten. And to pull out would have been to accelerate the loss of that aura of invincibility. Uh, <clears throat> plus, where do you withdraw to? By the time that you and I might have advised him to withdraw, all withdrawing would have done would have been to have moved the center of action closer to France. True. For mm. an awful lot of the time, he's fighting the British and the Spanish in Madrid or in northern Spain. If he pulls back to the Pyrenees, fine. And I've often said from the beginning that maybe he should have just fortified the Pyrenees as, as a way to keep British goods out of, you know, the main part of the continent and let Spain do what it wants. Uh, but once, once you start the process, if you try to withdraw, now there's no time to truly fortify the Pyrenees. All you're doing is you're making it easy for the war to move closer to French soil. So I think unless you're talking really early on, Napoleon didn't really have, you know, throwing in the towel as, as an option. Good point. And a couple of other things I've been reading about this campaign, the, the things that are happening behind the scenes, it was a, a battle of, as was Russia, I think, a battle of intelligence, like the, the, the behind-the-scenes intelligence. Apparently, the Spanish and Portuguese guerrillas were capturing messages from French couriers and they were actually able to decipher the encryption, the code tables that were being used on these. So, you know, the uh, the British under Wellington had a fair amount of information and the French didn't realise that their ciphers had been cracked, a little bit like uh, World War Two. And then uh, on the opposite side, Napoleon was getting bad intelligence. I've got some letters here. The first is a letter... Napoleon writes to Fouché. By the way, how many times do you think he said Touché, Fouché? Every, you know, I, he would. I would. If it was me, I would have been saying that at least once a day. I was hoping that we wouldn't hear that. But go, go on. <laughs> in, in August, on August twenty second, eighteen oh nine, and part of a letter Napoleon writes to Fouché, he says, 
Whilst the English are wasting their time on the Scheldt, in Spain, Lord Wellesley has been beaten, surrounded and utterly routed. He is trying to save himself by headlong flight in the middle of the hot season. When he retired from Talavera, he surrendered to the care of the Duke of Belluno, 5,000 sick and wounded English whom he is forced to leave behind him. At last, English blood is being shed. It is the best omen that peace is at length approaching. Undoubtedly, if matters have had been better managed in Spain, not a single Englishman would have escaped. But anyhow, they have been beaten, 6,000 killed, 8,000 taken prisoners, etc., etc. But then, three days later, August 25th, he writes a letter to General Clark where he says, You will see that, according to the dispatches of Wellesley, the English general, we lost 20 guns and three flags at Talavera. Inform the king of my surprise, King Joseph, obviously, of my surprise and General Jourdain of my displeasure that, instead of being told the real state of affairs, I am sent Republican romances, the kind of history they write for schoolboys. Tell them I want to know what gunners abandoned their pieces and which infantry divisions let the enemy capture their flags. Allow the king to infer from your letter that I was sorry to see the order of the day in which he told the men that they had won the battle. It's fatal to the troops. And tell him that I must have true information with the number of men killed and wounded in each corps, the number of guns and flags lost, etc. They start engagements in Spain without preparation or knowledge of war. And on the day of battle, they carry on without plan or combination or energy. Uh, la 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 la. So yeah, he gets stuck into them for basically... You know, sure. misleading him as to the results of the battles. It's you know, Napoleon was the master of using propaganda, but he expected his people to give him accurate information. And you know, it's not dissimilar. I often think of Napoleon as the first CEO. You know, you you look at the way that he treated not just his generals, but and his marshals, but also his brothers, the kings that he had appointed, he really treated them like a CEO, a modern CEO treats the, you know, the vice presidents of divisions. And uh, in a lot of ways, I remember during my time working at Microsoft, where you had a very Napoleonic figure in Bill Gates at the head of the company. And as the company, you know, in the early days of, you know, for the first 10 or 20 years, Bill was intimately involved in all of the major decisions and the strategy that the company was executing. And if a product division ever got into trouble, you know, Bill would come in and fix it. You know, he would just bring his singular intelligence and vision and and make it work. But then as the company got bigger and bigger, you know, I, I remember a few emails from Bill over the years saying that he needs the bad news first, that you know, there was a certain level of bureaucracy that crept into the organization where people would try and shelter Gates from the bad news when things were going wrong because they were obviously scared what his reaction would be. And I, I remember hearing various stories over the years that Bill's, you know, two I see, now the CEO of the company, Steve Barmer, is himself a big fan of Napoleonic history and is quite possibly a listener of the show. And, and if you're listening in, Steve, uh, you know, my kind regards. And mine too. Well, my friend, I think we have, although we've gone long, uh, we've managed to get through Spain and, and keep our pledge to make this a two-part, not a three-part episode. <laughs> well, before we finish, if I may, there was just one other thing that I wanted to read from my book of letters. Uh, let me find it here. Because, you know, I asked at the beginning of the episode, and I, I think this is a, a nice sort of... Uh, what do you call it when you open and close with the same theme? I'm sure you know the term for that. Bookends. I don't know. Bookends. That's what I was thinking. 
I, I asked you who was stirring up the trouble, and you, we, you've talked a number of times about the Catholics in Spain. In May of 1809, Napoleon wrote this letter to Count de Champigny, who was the Minister for Foreign Affairs at the time. People will remember that Talleyrand had resigned after the Treaty of Tilsit. And this is uh, a letter that Napoleon instructs his Minister for Foreign Affairs to read to the Pope. And it reads in part, His Majesty wishes this report to develop the motives laid down in the preamble to prove that when Charlemagne made the Pope's temporal sovereigns, he meant them to remain vassals of the empire, that nowadays, far from regarding themselves as vassals of the empire, they refuse to belong to it at all, that the motive of Charlemagne's generosity to the Popes was the good of Christianity, and that now they are becoming allies of the Protestants and of the enemies of Christ, and that one of the minor disadvantages resulting from this dis position is the sight of the head of the Catholic religion negotiating with Protestants, whereas according to the laws of the church, he ought to avoid them and excommunicate them. There is a prayer to that effect in use at Rome. The French armies at Naples and in North Italy are cut off from each other by the papal states. His Majesty's first idea was to leave the Pope his temporal power, as Charlemagne did, whilst requiring him, as a sovereign, and in the interests of the whole peninsula, to contract an offensive and defensive alliance with the kingdoms of Naples and Italy. The Pope refused. This meant that His Majesty would have to stand by whilst the English placed themselves between the armies of Naples and Italy, cut their communications, and made Rome the headquarters of their conspiracies and an asylum for the brigands whom His Majesty's enemies organise if they do not actually disgorge them on Neapolitan territory. Under these circumstances, the only possible course was to occupy Rome with troops. This measure though indispensable, excited endless protests and lasting enmity on the part of the head of religion against the most powerful prince in Christendom. But it was not as the head of religion that the Pope set himself up against measures of precaution on the part of a Catholic nation. It was as a temporal sovereign, and before long it was seen that, influenced by enemies of the Roman Church, the spiritual power was supported, supporting the temporal power. This became a source of anxiety and dissension in the very heart of His Majesty's vast domains. There is only one way in which His Majesty can put an end to debates so contrary to the welfare of religion and of the empire, and that is to revoke the donation of Charlemagne and to reduce the popes to their proper rank by safeguarding the spiritual power from the passions that control the temporal power. Jesus Christ, though born of the seed of David, refused to be a king. For centuries, none of the founders of our religion were kings. There is no learned doctor and no candid historian who does not agree that the temporal power of the popes is fatal to religion. If, for so many years, the internal history of France was marked by religious dissension, that cause lay not in the spiritual but in the temporal claims of the papacy. If great nations broke away from the church, the cause still lay in Rome's abuse of her power. When Julius sent his armies to cut off Charles VIII's retreat, he did so in the interests of the Pope, not as pontiff, but as prince. It was this confusion of the two powers, this support that each gave the other to forward their common usurpations, which forced our ancestors to establish the liberties of the Galician church and which obliges us to separate the two powers. 
And it goes on and on. But it basically, you know, we can see that amidst this conflict, Napoleon's relationship with the Pope has completely disintegrated. He sent troops into Rome. He gets excommunicated. Now, you know, listeners will remember that the revolution basically kicked the Catholics out of France. Napoleon brought them back in the very famous Concordat. And then he had the Pope crown him, well, sort of participate in the ceremony of the coronation. But now it's completely dissolved. And, and Napoleon, but with very good reason, is, you know, at war with the Pope. And I'm sure this, as you say, the, the Spanish were a very Catholic people. And, and this didn't help matters. That makes my point exactly. It's a fascinating letter and... And a fascinating, if from the French standpoint, uh, campaign and period of, of, of Napoleonic history. And from a historical um, context, I, you know, I, I, for people who aren't familiar with the decline of the papal states, you know, this I learned this in my time in Italy. This was really the beginning of the end of the concept of papal states, which had been around, sure. as Napoleon said, since Charlemagne was finally to be dissolved in 1871 under the unification of Italy, but was really started by Napoleon when he tried to unify Italy earlier on and through his, you know, renunciation of Charlemagne's grant to the Pope of the Papal States. And, you know, in terms of historical context, this is really where the modern Italy as we know it today started to take shape. Exactly so, my friend. Well, listen, this has been a very interesting episode, but I do think we have uh, hit an hour and a half now, which is fairly long, even by our standards. Outstate our welcome, you feel. Thank you very much, Mr. Markham, for your insights into Napoleon, as always, on behalf of myself and the audience. And to the audience, thank you for tuning in. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. We'll be back in a couple more weeks for Chapter 21 of the Napoleon Bonaparte and the rise of the Fifth Coalition. Indeed we will. Again, thanks to all of you out there for listening. Thanks especially to, to our soldiers in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and to all the people all around the world who, who do us the great honor of finding our uh, effort uh, to be uh, worth uh, listening. <laughs>